0: Well, let's start reading together in chapter 12 uh, verse 1 and hear the word of the Lord. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And he went out and followed him. He didn't know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent His angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Father, I pray that you would Give us grace to hear from your word this morning. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you feed us now and may it become our food to do your will this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're on the cusp of a new section. Luke's narrative will soon shift to King Jesus advancing the gospel among the Gentiles in particular. Right before this shift, Luke gives us one further report of the gospel's success in Jerusalem. But, but it's in the face of a new and greater obstacle than than what they've seen before. Herod the king. To this point, the opposition has largely consisted of of a small group of, of Jewish religious authorities. And they've tried to squash the church's testimony. But the gospel continues to prove unstoppable. Now, we meet a Gentile king named Herod, and he too opposes the church, but he's... He's no small religious authority. He is the ruler of all Judea and Galilee and Perea. There are a couple of other Herods in Scripture. Uh, Herod the Great was the king who tried to kill Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. Herod Antipas was the king involved in Jesus' trial. He also wanted to kill Jesus according to Luke 13. This is Herod Agrippa I, grandson to Herod the Great, nephew to Herod Antipas, and he too opposes Jesus and his kingdom, just like his ancestors. And something to keep in mind here is that Christianity poses a serious political threat because its followers pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. Herod has some political motivations here. Verse 2 says he kills James, the brother of John, with the sword. And notice verse 3. Herod wants to p- kill Peter also, he says, because he saw that James's death pleased the Jews. In other words, he does whatever he wants to gain more popularity among the people over which he's ruling. He flaunts His power to gain glory. He's the most powerful earthly authority that we've met so far, and and this new obstacle raises questions right before we we get into the Gentile mission. Will the gospel reach the ends of the earth when power-hungry rulers stand in the way? Will the church's mission endure when evil rulers behead its leaders will God hear our prayers and act for us? God's answer for us in chapter 12 is a big yes. Yes, the gospel will march on. Yes, Christ will build His church. Yes, God will answer and act for His people and in some pretty surprising ways. Before we get to Peter's surprising rescue, though, notice the church's response here. Peter Peter isn't just in prison. Verse 4 says he has... Four squads of soldiers to guard him. That's 16 soldiers total. Four soldiers at a time, rotating different shifts day and night so everybody stays alert. In verse 6, Peter has to sleep between them, chained down with two chains. A first and second guard stand in the way. They must have heard what happened before in chapter 5, verse 19. Peter's other escape. They're ratcheting up the security, it seems. From a human perspective, Peter's situation is, is pretty hopeless. But in the face of great obstacles, notice the church's response here in verse 5. It says, but earnest prayer for him was made by God, I mean, made to God by the church. Earnest prayer. Luke, Luke uses the same word to describe. Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he is sweating drops of blood. The church is pleading with God to act on on Peter's behalf. Verse 12 indicates that many of them had gathered together and were praying throughout the night. We're not told exactly what they prayed. It could have been for Peter's rescue. More likely, though, it could have it, it, it was for Peter's perseverance because they're so shocked by his escape later on. Whatever they prayed, though, the point is that they prayed, and they did so earnestly. Again, Luke stresses the power of prayer here. In his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper illustrates prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie. He writes, Prayer is for the accomplishment of of a wartime mission. It's as though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission, go and bear fruit. And then he handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters and said, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished and to that end he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to His mission and seek His victory first, He will always be as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send air cover when you need it. But what have millions of Christians done, he asks. We have stopped believing that we are in a war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peace and prosperity, And what did we do with the walkie-talkie? We tried to rig it up as an intercom in our houses and cabins and boats and cars, not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask for more comforts in the den. There's no question that the church here understands that life is war, that the kingdom of Christ as it's advancing on earth is undermining the kingdom of Herod, and Herod doesn't like it. Herod wants the apostles dead so he can build his own kingdom for his own glory, but the church takes hold of that walkie-talkie and pleads for their king to act. Do you pray earnestly for God to act? I mean, when you see great obstacles, false worldviews all around us, The allure of earthly riches, the bondage of men and women in the porn and sex trafficking industry, popular voices who dismiss Christianity, countless idols controlling people, false teachers confusing the church, government officials denying visas to Christians, our own sinful choices. When you see these obstacles, how do you pray? And is it earnestly? Folks, powerless as we may be when compared to the movers and shakers of our day, weak as we may be before the armies of people who hate Jesus, small church as we may be when facing multi-billion dollar corporations that have moral agendas totally opposed to Christianity, unheard as your voice may be against corrupt governments and institutions, vulnerable as we may be in the face of temptation, we can pray. We can pray to God. The most powerful person in the universe, Jesus Christ, is on our side. Our Father stands ready to listen. What can you do in the face of great obstacles opposed to Christ? You can pray. And we've seen this throughout the book of Acts. Here again, the church prays earnestly for Peter. And God answers their prayer in a pretty surprising rescue. I say it's surprising because both Peter and the church are surprised by what God does. Peter is sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. Sentries are guarding the prison. Notice that only Peter is sleeping the text says nothing about the soldiers sleeping. Then suddenly an angel appears in verse 7, strikes Peter on the side and says, Get up quickly. The chains fell off his feet. Verse 8, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. Wrap your cloak around you. Follow me. And Peter follows him. He, he doesn't even know what's going on, verse 9 says. And they get by two levels of guards. The iron gate opens. He's free. Angel leaves. Peter standing in the middle of the street, rescued. A lot of similarities exist between the great Exodus deliverance and Peter's rescue here. It's Passover time. It's at night time. An arrogant king wants God's people dead. The odds are impossible. An angel is involved. They have to get their sandals on quickly, take their cloak and get out. The sea opens there. The gate opens here. God rescues His people without them doing anything. Peter's half asleep here. And then He kills the arrogant king at the end of the story. We see that this, the God of the Exodus is still acting for His people. This, this warrior is still fighting on behalf of His people. And here we see Him acting to rescue Peter from Herod. We forget how much God controls things. We forget His power. Sometimes our prayers are limited by what we believe is possible only from a human perspective. But God isn't limited to what we believe He can do. What does Ephesians 3 say? God does far more abundantly than anything we can ask or think. God upholds the molecular structure of these iron gates and chains by the word of His power. If He wants them to disintegrate, poof, He can do it. The soldiers are guarding Peter and yet they see nothing, they hear nothing... They feel nothing. That's how much God controls things. He controls what you're able to see and hear and comprehend. Remember the Emmaus road account in Luke 24, and they're on the road. Jesus, the risen Jesus, standing right in front of them, and it says, "But their eyes were prevented from recognizing Him." This is how much God controls things. Even, even Peter doesn't get it until verse 11 when Peter came to himself. He said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. God works in surprising ways. The church wasn't expecting this either. I mean, it's really hilarious. They're praying earnestly for Peter. Peter knocks on the gate and it takes them forever to open it. Verse 14, Rhoda hears Peter's voice. She's so excited she forgets to open the door. So she runs and gets the others. And then they say, you're out of your mind. And then they get in an argument. She kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, no, it's his angel. You can imagine Peter, like, outside. An angel just got me out of prison. I can't even get in, my, in the house. Gee whiz, there's a really easy way to figure this out, guys, Right? Open the gate. He keeps knocking, it says, and finally they open it. It's him. Surprise. He has to quiet down the excitement to explain what he's going to do next. And really, this is Peter's kind of exit. We'll see him one more time in, in Acts 15. But, but largely, we, we don't see Peter much any, anymore in the book of Acts. We see a lot with Paul. Paul. We learn a couple of things from this this rescue here. And one is that we must remember that that in our prayers that God is able to do the impossible. What is impossible with man is possible with God. He does far more abundantly than anything we can ask or think. And that should give us even greater confidence to pray for God to overcome great obstacles. No matter what you see standing in the way of His work. Are you more likely to complain about it and despair or get on your face and cry out to God earnestly for him to work? Pray for God to work wonders. And remember, when you when doing so, your prayers don't have to be perfect for him to ask to, for him to act. I mean, sometimes he's going to do the totally unexpected. He's going to answer your prayers far beyond what you even what you even thought. I mean, the church wasn't expecting Peter to get out like he did. That's why they're so stunned. But they still prayed earnestly. But something else we, we learn is that God doesn't always overcome obstacles in the same way, or in the way we might expect. We can't forget that while Peter was rescued, James was not. James was not. God had different plans for James and Peter as He does for all of us. We're not told why God allowed James to be killed and Peter to live longer. And by placing these these two accounts beside one another, Luke shows that we're not always guaranteed a divine rescue like this. So we can't turn this passage into, well, if I just pray this and this, he'll get so-and-so out of jail and -and so-and-so out of suffering. That promise is not here. What we are guaranteed is that God controls everything and is orchestrating everything to advance His purpose in Christ. The death of James wasn't outside of God's control. King Herod isn't outside God's control. The soldiers aren't outside God's control. The rescue of Peter clearly shows that God could have done the miraculous for James but he chose not to. Peter's rescue becomes a comfort to the church who just lost a beloved leader. You can imagine the fear and the worry like, this: apostles haven't died yet, and James just gets beheaded, and you can imagine the fear the church feels. Is, is, Is God losing ground here? And this account says don't think for one second, church, that God isn't in in control here. He's got this. Watch what He does next. And even here, we're forced to remember the theology of God's sovereignty that came out of the cross earlier in the book of Acts. Chapter 4, verse 28. You see, there was another King Herod who gathered against Jesus along with Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, it says, to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. King Herod wasn't in control when Jesus died on the cross. And this King Herod wasn't in control either when he killed James. God has a purpose in the death of his beloved ones, just as he had a good purpose in the death of his own beloved son. And we can trust God whenever supernatural rescue is necessary for the gospel's advance. We can trust God's going God's to do it, He will do it. But if He chooses not to rescue, He's, he's still on the throne, working His sovereign will. It's kind of like a situation like you, like we see with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? in when they're about when they're being threatened with the fiery furnace, and they say to the king, like, "We're sure our God can deliver us from this fiery furnace, but if He doesn't, we ain't bowing to your idols. His kingdom will rule." He's still on the throne, working His sovereign will. That means that when, when we encounter the martyrdom of other Christians or when we face suffering for the gospel, we should never think that God is losing ground. His kingdom marches on with or without us because Jesus is alive never to die again. And one day He will raise James and the rest of us from the dead. We can also trust that God will deal with evil rulers and replace their kingdoms with His own. And this leads us to the sobering retribution in, in verses 18 to 23. We see the, the arrogance of King Herod continues. The soldiers are confused about the escape. And of course, they're fearing for their lives. There's a great disturbance. For Romans, it was customary to charge a soldier with capital punishment if he failed to fulfill his duties. So Luke gives us every reason to believe the soldiers are innocent. But Herod doesn't care. He kills them because he lost face. You see, he had already announced his plan to execute Peter after Passover. You see that in verse 4. He was intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And then we see it again in uh, verse... 11 at the end where he says he sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So he had already announced, I'm bringing him out after Passover. I'm going to kill him. Everybody knows it. If he shows up after Passover with no Peter, he looks weak. So I'm going to kill my soldiers to save my face. He kills his own soldiers to preserve his glory. He's also angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, verse 20 says. Tyre and Sidon depend on Herod's country for food. says there at the end of verse 20, he is capitalizing on weaker countries for his own political glory. Don't miss the connection between sinful anger and self-glory. Herod gets angry when others get in the way of his glory. Also, don't miss the satanic nature of Herod's dealings here. If you look back at chapter 4 of Luke's Gospel, which is volume 1 of this two-volume account... Luke chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, we see Satan tempting Jesus. And he takes Jesus up and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And what does he say? But that he's going to give Jesus authority over all the nations if Jesus would just fall down and worship him. What is Satan doing? He is offering political favors if Jesus would just worship him. What is Herod doing here? He is offering political favors to gain the people's worship. It is satanic to the core. Verse 21 even shows him propping himself up on a throne in his royal robes and the people shouting the voice of a god and not of a man. And Herod loves it. Loves it when people make much of him. But we know from the Bible that God alone deserves worship and the consequences for ignoring God's glory are severe. Verse 23 says, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he didn't give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. This is historically accurate. We see this account of Herod's death in resources outside scripture like in Josephus. The only thing is that they they don't interpret it this way. What we're getting here is God's footnotes to what happened in history. An angel of the Lord struck him down. That's how he died. Because he didn't give God the glory. God doesn't tolerate glory thieves. I remember having my stereo system stolen when I was in high school. You know, you do that kind of thing in high school. Subwoofers, Pioneer CD deck. Walk up to my truck, twisted door handle on my truck, cut wires laying everywhere. You feel a level of disgust when someone steals what's rightfully yours. If that's how we feel toward our fellow man, what do you think the most holy God feels toward us when we steal glory that rightfully belongs to Him? The scripture is replete with passages on how all glory and honor and might and power and blessing belong to God and to God alone. When people get visions of God's glory, like Isaiah 6, he sees God on his throne, seraphs, Above him, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It brings him to his knees in the dust. And he places his hands over his mouth. Woe is me. God will not tolerate glory thieves. God punishes those who refuse to worship him. On the one hand, this should bring some level of sobriety to all of our attempts to rob God of His glory. Man pleasing, false humility, the need for approval from others, always feeling the need to explain yourself, to preserve this certain image that you want other people to see, fishing for compliments, getting envious when overlooked. These are just different forms of the same pride we see in King Herod. So I want you to let your disgust in this passage with a King Herod drive you to a new level of disgust with your own pride. You see this kind of pride deserves God's retribution. then I want you to look again to the cross of Jesus Christ, because the retribution that you and I deserve for all of our pride was poured out on Christ in our place. And then worship Him for His grace. Worship God for His worth and for His grace. On the other hand, this passage also gives us great hope. God will condemn all evil rulers who seek their own glory and who oppress the church. We can rest assured that God will vindicate his suffering church. I mean, how else can Peter sleep in a prison cell? When he just lost a best friend, two soldiers are beside him, his execution is coming. How do you sleep through that? By knowing that your king is risen and will bring all other kings to justice. He will vindicate us over our enemies at the resurrection. If God will punish Peter's enemies, he doesn't have to and he doesn't have to worry. Neither do we. We can leave that in God's hands and lay down our lives in love while entrusting our souls to a faithful judge. The safest place to be is doing God's will. And Peter rests in that, as we should too. It seems that the church knew this pretty well because they continued to spread the word of God without fear. Verse 24 says but the Word of God increased and multiplied. You've got to love the contrast here. Herod died and was eaten by worms, but the Word of God continued to increase and multiply. Here, Luke reveals to us the sovereign Redeemer. You see, as you're reading this book, you're asking the question, remember, Jesus. we, we saw that Jesus was enthroned in chapter 2 of Acts. He is enthroned in heaven, and the question is, who's the true king by the end of this chapter? It's Jesus. King Herod is dead, but King Jesus is still alive, advancing his kingdom through his word. The Word of God increased and multiplied. Evangelism, discipleship, churches planted and formed and equipping more to evangelize and discipleship and plant more churches and rinse, wash, and repeat. That's how it goes. That's the rhythm of the gospel going out. It increases and multiplies because King Jesus is on the throne. If you were a significant government official, let's pretend that we are Theophilus. That's who this book is written to. The most excellent Theophilus. And let's pretend that we are this significant government official in the first century. You rank high in society. Maybe you're even part of the king's army. Maybe you're just a rich supporter of the king's politics. And let's say you happen to pick up and read the book of Acts. You're intrigued. This gospel keeps overcoming one obstacle after another. Unbelief can't stop it, chapter 2. The religious authorities can't stop it, chapter 3 and 5. Persecution can't stop it, 7 and 11. Demons can't stop it, in 8. Conflict within the church can't stop it, in 5 and 6. Cultural and ethnic barriers can't stop it, in 10 and 11. The death of its leaders can't stop it, Acts 12. Not even my powerful king can stop it, Acts 12. And that realization wakes you up. What is the Word of God saying after all? What message could be so compelling, so powerful? Who is this King Jesus? If His kingdom prevails over all, I want in. This is the apologetic value of Acts to the world. It paints such a compelling picture of the gospel's success that people ask to know more of this Jesus. Jesus is not just another earthly king who comes and passes away. No, he lives forever and therefore his kingdom is forever. And one day it will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Therefore, the message to the world is repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. The message for us is repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. His kingdom is unstoppable. But something else you would notice, Theophilus, about Jesus' kingdom is this. It doesn't spread through power-hungry kings and military might. It doesn't spread through the rich and important people of society. It doesn't spread by violence and economic oppression for political gain. It doesn't spread through governments and its laws. It spreads through the weak and the humble who pray and speak the word and sacrifice their lives for others. That's what we see going on here. James's martyrdom was not in vain because the Word of God increased and multiplied. Peter's sufferings are not in vain because the Word of God increased and multiplied. And your sufferings are not in vain because the Word of God will increase and multiply. Nothing's stopping it. I also want you to notice that this story falls right between Barnabas and Saul carrying generous gifts to the churches in Jerusalem who were suffering because of a famine. That was where we left off in verse 30 of chapter 11, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Then we get verse 25 that closes it out. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So right in between, the church showing generosity to those who are in need, we have this picture of an arrogant king who's strangling Tyre and Sidon because they're hungry, until he gets what he wants. Until he gets his glory. And the message is this, Jesus' kingdom spreads through sacrificial love and generosity for the glory of God versus the kingdoms of the world that spread through violence and oppression for the glory of man. How does the kingdom of God advance through your life, church? By becoming a slave of all. Why does the kingdom of God spread that way? Because that's how our king defeats the world and saves his people. Through a cross to resurrection. Through a cross to resurrection. That should tell us what our role is as a church. When we see all of the political figureheads and blowhorns and corrupt governments. What is our role? We earnestly pray, we speak the word of God, and we sacrifice our lives in humility and generosity towards others. I'm not saying anything new today that you haven't heard before. Acts seems very intent to repeat these kinds of things. It's like the Holy Spirit is pounding it into the church. This is the way God's kingdom advances. We pray earnestly. We speak the word. We sacrifice for others. Prayer, the gospel, sacrificial love, these are our weapons of warfare. Jesus' kingdom will prevail. And that means every sacrifice that you make, every heartbreak that you feel over people you've poured your lives out for, and they betray you or ignore you, every sacrifice will be worth it. Because His kingdom will prevail. Prevail. When he comes again, he will reward us. And we will be forever joyful in his presence. Why don't we pray together?